0: Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum. The Science and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hi there.
1: My name is Renee Rao, and I'll be hosting today's show. This week on Spectrum, we present part two of our two interviews with Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick. Dr. Ames is a senior scientist at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute, director of their Nutrition and Metabolism Center, and a professor emeritus of biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Rhonda Patrick has a PhD in biomedical science. Dr. Patrick is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute in Dr. Ames' lab. She currently conducts clinical trials looking at the effects of micronutrients on metabolism, inflammation, DNA damage, and aging. In February of 2014, she published a paper in the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology journal on how vitamin D regulates serotonin synthesis and how this relates to autism. In part one, Bruce and Rhonda described his triage theory for micronutrients in humans and their importance in health and aging. In part two, they discussed public health risk factors, research funding models, and the future work they wish to do. Here is part two of Brad Swift's interview with Dr. Ames and Patrick.
0: Is there
2: a discussion going on in the public health community about this sort of
0: important I'll let research? i field that one.
3: I think that people are becoming more aware of... The importance of micronutrient deficiencies in the U.S. population, we've got now these national health and examination surveys that people are doing, examining the levels of these essential vitamins and minerals. 70% of the population is not getting enough vitamin D, 45% of the population not getting enough magnesium, 60% is not getting enough vitamin K. is not getting enough vitamin C, 60% is not getting enough vitamin E, and on and on. 90% is not getting enough potassium. Potassium is very difficult to get. So I think that with these surveys that are really coming out with these striking numbers on these micronutrient deficiencies in in the population, I mean, they're really widespread.
0: And with triage, the numbers they're telling you may be wrong because they're thinking short-term instead of long-term. Really what you want to know is what level do you need to keep a maximum lifespan. And our paper discussed all that, and, but I must say the nutrition community hasn't embraced it yet, but they will because we're showing it's true. And we may need even more of certain things, but again, you don't want to overdo it.
2: So talk a little bit about risk factors in general in health. A lot of people, as you were saying, are very obsessed with chemicals, or, so maybe their risk assessment is misdirected. What do you think are the big health issues, the big health risks? Well,
0: I think obesity is like smoking. Smoking is 8 or 10 years off your life. Each cigarette takes 10 minutes off your life. I mean, it's a disaster. And smoking levels are going down and down because people understand finally that still a lot of people smoke. But obesity is just as bad. years of expensive diabetes and the costs are going to be huge. Whatever you look at, Alzheimer's or brain dysfunction of all sorts is higher in the obese. And there have been several studies of the diet of the obese, and it's horrible. I mean, it's sugar. It's comfort food, and they're not eating fruits and vegetables, and they're not eating berries and nuts and not eating fish. And so it's doing them in, and the country is paying for
3: it. I think that the biggest risk in Becoming unhealthy and increasing your risk of age-related diseases, inflammatory diseases, comes down to micronutrient intake. And people are not getting enough of that. And we know that. We've quantified it. We know they're not getting enough. And so I think that people like to focus on a lot of what not to eat. Don't eat sugar. And that's right. You shouldn't eat a lot of sugar. I mean, there's a lot of bad effects on constantly having insulin signaling activated. You can become insulin resistant, type 2 diabetic. And these things are important. But I think you also need to realize you need to focus on what you're not getting as opposed to only focusing on what you should not be getting.
0: A colleague, Lois Gold, and I wrote over 100 papers trying to put risk in perspective. That part per billion pesticide is really uninteresting. Organic food or regular food, it doesn't matter. It's, it makes you feel good, but you're really not either improving the environment or helping your health. Now you're not allowed to say that things like that in Berkeley. But anyway, it's your diet you should be worried about getting a good balanced diet. So if you put out a thousand hypothetical risks, you're lost because nobody knows what's important anymore. And that's where we're getting: don't smoke and eat a good diet. You're way ahead of the game.
2: And, and for, exercise.
0: And exercise. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: And in talking about the current situation with funding, when you think back, Bruce, in the early days of your career and the opportunities that were there for getting funding, vastly different?
0: Well, there was much less money in the system, but I always was able to get funded my whole career, and I've always done reasonably well. But now it's a little discouraging when I think I have big ideas that are going to Really cut healthcare costs, and uh, we have big ideas on obesity, and I just can't get any of this funded. Mm-hmm. But now, if you're at all original, it's hopeless putting in a grant. I just have given up on it.
3: Well, the, because, N- the NIH doesn't like to fund creative. Yeah,
0: if you're thinking differently than everybody else, you do, and they're only funding 8 or 9% of grants, you just can't get funded. I do not want to work on a 1% advance. So I'm funding it out of my own pocket. I made some money from a biotech company of one of my students, and that's what's supporting my lab. And then a few rich people who saw potential gave me some money. But it's really tough now getting enough money to do this work. That's an interesting model, Mm self-funding. Well, Rhonda's trying to do that with – she has a blog and people supporting her and Uh, I'm trying to do
3: some crowdfunding where instead of going to the government and then all these National Institute of Cancer, Aging, whatever, which essentially uses taxpayer dollar anyways to fund research, I'm just going to the people. That's what I'm trying to do. My ultimate goal is to go to the people, tell them about this research I'm doing and my ideas, how we're going to do it, and have them fund it. People are willing to give money to make advances in science. They just need to know about it.
0: Why don't you tell them what your app is so –
3: so, I have an app called Found My Fitness, which is the name of my platform, where I basically break down science and nutrition and fitness to people. And I explain to them mechanisms, I explain to them context, you know, because it's really hard to keep up with all these press releases you're bombarded with. And some of them are accurate and some aren't. And most of the time, you just have no idea what is going on. It's very difficult to sort of navigate through all that mess. So I've developed a platform called Found My Fitness where I'm trying to basically educate people by explaining and breaking down the science behind a lot of these
2: different topics. So it's a website and it's an app?
3: It's a website that's also an app. You can download on your iPhone called Found My Fitness, and I have short videos, YouTube videos that I do where I talk about particular science topics or health and nutrition topics. I also have a podcast where I talk about them. I'm interviewing other scientists in the field and things like that and also i've got a news community site where people can interact post new news science stories or nutrition stories whatever it is and people comment so we're kind of building a community where people can interact and ask questions and
0: ronda makes a video every once in a while and puts it up on her website and she has people supporting at least some of this and uh, she hopes to finally get enough money coming in to support her research
3: no, I think we're heading that way. I think that scientists are going to have to find new creative ways to fund their research, uh, particularly if they have creative ideas. As Bruce mentioned, it's because it's so competitive to get that less than 10% funding, uh, the NIH doesn't really fund really creative and risky you know, Well, they hypotheses.
0: try to, but it's you need somebody who gets it when you put out a new idea. Right. And if it's against conventional wisdom, which I like to do if <laughs> the occasion arises – Then it's almost impossible. Anyway.
2: Even with your reputation?
0: Yeah, it's hard. I've just given up writing grants now. It's a huge amount of work. And when they keep on getting turned down, even though I think these are wonderful ideas, luckily I can keep a basal level supporting the lab. I found a rich fellow who had an autistic grandkid, a guy named Jorgensen, and he supported Rhonda and he supported her for a year and she was able to do all these things.
3: Yeah.
0: At my age, I want to have a lot of big ideas and I just like to get them out there.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: Anyway, we shouldn't complain. We're, 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 we're doing okay right
3: now. It's a very fulfilling job. There's nothing more fulfilling than doing science, in my opinion. Yes.
1: You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Today's guests are Dr. Bruce Ames and Dr. Rhonda Patrick of Children's Hospital Oakland Research Institute.
2: The Ames test, when you came up with that, was that what was the process involved with, well, with how was, you devised that? Well,
0: I was always half a geneticist and half a biochemist. And I thought mutation is really important and Nobody was testing new substances out there to see if they were mutagens, and so I thought it'd be nice to develop a simple, easy test in bacteria for doing that, that was cheap and quick. And then I became interested in the relation of carcinogens to mutagens, and so I was trying to convince people that the active forms of carcinogens were mutagens. There were other people in that area, too, but I was an early enthusiast for that idea. and. Anyway, it just came from my knowledge of two different fields. Mm-hmm. But that's a long time ago. I'm more excited about the brain now.
2: Yeah, the current <laughs> stuff that you're doing, obviously, is yeah. it's more
0: exciting. Yeah.
2: Do you both spend time paying attention to other areas of science?
0: I read an enormous amount. And every 10 or 15 years, I seem to change my field and follow off something that seems a little hotter than the other things. And... I've been reasonably successful at that, so that's what I like to do.
3: I am constantly reading about all the latest research coming out. I mean, that's like pretty much all I do is I'm very excited about the new field of epigenetics where we're connecting what we eat our lifestyle, how much stress we are under, how much exercise we do, how much sleep we get, how this is actually changing methylation patterns, acetylation patterns in our DNA, and how that can change gene expression, turn on genes, turn off genes, and how this all relates to the way we age, how it relates to behavior, how it relates to us passing on behaviors to our children, Mm -hmm. grandchildren. You know, this is a field that's, to me, really exciting and something that I spend quite a bit of time reading about. So for both of
2: you, what have been... In the course of your career, the technologies, the discoveries that have impacted your work the most?
0: Well, obviously, understanding DNA and all the things it does was a huge advance for biology. And I was always half a geneticist, so I was hopping up and down when that Watson Crick paper came out. And I gave it in the journal club to all these distinguished biochemists, and they said, very speculative. And I said, I was a young squirt. I said, you guys, be quiet. This is the paper of the century. And it made a huge difference. And there's been one advance after another, a lot of technical advances. Little companies spring up, making your life easier and all of that. So it's been fun going through all.
3: I think you know, in terms of my own research, which got me to where I'm at now, a lot of the the technological advances in making transgenic mouse models and knocking out certain genes, being able to manipulate, doing inserting viral vectors with a specific gene and with a certain promoter on it and targeting it to a certain tissue, so you can you know look at specifically at what it's doing in that tissue or knock it out and what yeah. it's doing in that tissue. That for me has uh, been a very useful technology that's helped me learn a lot. In addition, I like to do a lot of imaging, so. Uh, these fluorescent proteins that we can you know, use to tag on, look at other proteins, where they're located, both tissue-wise and also intracellularly inside the cell, doing that in real time. So there's now live cell imaging we can do and see things dynamically, like, for example, looking at mitochondria and how they move and what they're doing in real time. Like That, for me, has also been really uh, useful technology yeah. in helping me understand mitochondria and how they function, how dysfunction can occur. So I think uh, those, those have been really important yeah. technologies for me.
0: And then computers changed biology. Google made a huge difference. You can put two odd facts into Google and out come all these papers. You'd spend years in a library trying to figure all this stuff out. So Google really made theoretical biology possible. And I think this whole paper that Rhonda did, she couldn't have done it without Google. That was the technology that opened it all up. There's so much literature And nobody can read all this and remember it all. We need these search engines.
2: So is this kind of a boom in theoretical biology?
0: Well, I I wouldn't say there's a boom yet, but there's so much information out there that people haven't put together.
3: Yeah, people have been generating data over the years. There's tons of data out there, and there's a lot of well-done research that people haven't put together connected the dots and made big picture understanding of complex things. So I think that there is an opening for that and I do think that people will start to do that more and they are starting to do it more and more.
2: So in the past there really wasn't a theoretical biology that was Oh,
0: there was, certainly Darwin was theoretical <laughs> you could say and uh, lots of people had big ideas and they unified fields, but it was rare.
3: I think we have more of an advantage in that we can provide mechanisms a little easier because we can read all this data. You know, people like Darwin, they were doing theoretical work, but they were also making observations. So, what we're doing now is we're looking at observations other people have made and putting those together.
1: Spectrum is a public affairs show on K A L X Berkeley. This is part 2 of a two-part interview with Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick.
2: Are there other scientists active in the longevity field that, whose work you admire that you would love to collaborate with?
0: Well, or associated One fields, always even. collaborates. So science is both very collegial and very competitive. You think, ah, somebody might get there first. And, but one of the tricks I like in my lab is we have half a dozen really good people with different expertise. And we sit around a table and discuss things. And it's and no one person can know all this. And So anyway, that helps. And you might be collaborating with this guy now because both of you contribute something that the other person doesn't have a technique or whatever. And in three years, we might be competing with him. But (laughs) that's why it's good to keep good relations with everybody. But business is the same way. Companies compete and uh, collaborate.
3: Yeah. I, I personally, um, in, in terms of the field of longevity, uh, I admire the work of Elizabeth Blackburn, who discovered, uh, won the Nobel Prize for playing a role in discovering the enzyme telomerase.
0: That was done at Berkeley, by the way.
3: Yeah, and she's now a professor at UCSF, so I would be really excited to have a collaboration with her.
2: Well, what are the lab's research plans going forward now? Other than Rhonda's next (laughs) two papers. Yeah,
0: Rhonda has uh, these papers to get out, and uh, I'd like to get the whole business of tuning up our metabolism on firmer ground to convince nutrition people who are expert in one particular vitamin or mineral. Most people study B6 for their whole lives or study niacin for their whole lives or magnesium, and I'd like to get the experts in a particular field to think about triage and what protein do we measure that tells you you're short uh, and not getting enough, the vulnerable ones, and get that idea out and do a few examples and convince people that RDA should be based on long-term effects rather than short-term. And then Rhonda and I were talking the other day, and we both got excited about drugs there's money to be made. So pharmaceutical companies compete on getting new and better drugs, and they can be billion-dollar drugs. But nutrition, nobody can make money out of it. And so do you want to do a clinical trial on vitamin D the way you do with a drug? Food and drug wants a double-blind, randomized, control clinical trial. That's the gold standard for drugs, but it's not for nutrition. Because nutrition. You have to measure... If 20% of the population is low on vitamin D, you don't want to do a study where you don't measure who's low and who's high because otherwise it's designed to fail. So you have to measure things. Now, vitamin D is many more deficient, but a lot of vitamins, 10% are low or 20% is low. And you can't just lump them in with all the people who have enough and do a randomized double-blind clinical trial and think it's going to mean something without measuring something. Rhonda has one of her videos on her website demolishing all these doctors who are saying vitamins are useless. They're all based on clinical trials that are designed for drugs, and they don't measure anything. So you have to know who's deficient, and then taking that amount of vitamin makes you sufficient.
3: I think uh, some interesting ongoing research in our lab is also the the Cori Bar. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Joyce McCann Lab is directing a project on the Cori Bar. We were deciding how do you get vitamins and minerals into the poor. And we made a little bar, which is kind of all the components of a Mediterranean diet that people aren't getting enough of vitamins and all the vitamins and minerals and fish oil and vitamin D and soluble fiber and insoluble fiber and plant polyphenols. And we can raise everybody's HDL in a couple of weeks. And this is the mass of people, aren't, even though they think they're eating a good diet, aren't. And obese people are, have their metabolism all fouled up and we're even learning how to make progress there. Yes. So.
3: so the really cool thing about it is that you can take a population of people that eats very unhealthy and they are obese, meaning they have a BMI of 30 or above, and you can give them this nutritional bar that has a variety of micronutrients, it has essential fatty acids and some polyphenols, fiber, and give it to them twice a day on top of their crappy diet. You don't tell them to change their diet at all. It's like, keep doing what you're doing, but here, eat those twice a day on top of what you're doing. and you can see that you know after a few weeks that these changes start to occur whether their hdl's raise or ldl's lower i mean there's there's a lot of positive effects you know lower c-reactive protein so i think this is really groundbreaking research because it's it says look you can take someone who's eating a terrible diet completely probably micronutrient deficient in many essential vitamins and minerals and such, eating a bunch of sugar and crap and processed foods and on and on and on. And yet you can give them this nutritional bar that has a combination of micronutrients in it. And you can quantify changes that are positive. I think that's a really exciting ongoing project in our lab.
2: Bruce Ames and Rhonda Patrick, thanks very much for being on Spectrum. It's a pleasure.
3: Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having us.
1: To learn more about the work Ames and Patricks are doing, visit their websites, bruceames.org and foundmyfitness.com. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes U. We've created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash And now, a calendar of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karnesky joins me to present the calendar. On Sunday, July 13th, the Bay Area meetup, Random Acts of Science, will host an event to do science with paper. Paper is one of the most commonly available materials with a variety of science applications. Everything from the dynamics of classic paper airplanes, launching paper rockets, and building structures in origami will be discussed. The group will also learn about fibers in paper and how to create their own homemade paper. Raw materials will be provided... But attendees are also welcome to bring their own. The event will be held july thirteenth from two to three PM outside the Genetics and Plant Biology Building on the UC Berkeley campus. It is free and open to anyone interested in coming.
4: BASICs, the Bay Area Art Science Interdisciplinary Collaborative Sessions, will have their fifth event on Monday the fourteenth, from six thirty to ten PM at the ODC Theater. 3153 17th Street in San Francisco. The theme is monsters. Professor John Haffernick will introduce the audience to a parasitic fly that turns European honeybees into zombies. Author and translator Eric Butler will explain how literature and film have made the vampire, a native of Eastern Europe, into a naturalized American with a preference for the Golden State. Marine biologist, David McGuire, will disentangle the media-fueled myth of the shark from its true nature. And Kyle Taylor, senior scientist for the Glowing Plant Project, will show off plants that glow in the dark. Admission will be on a sliding scale, from absolutely nothing up to 20 bucks. Visit basics.com for more info. That's B-A-A-S-I-C-S dot com.
1: On Saturday, July 19th, UC Berkeley molecular and cell biology professor Kathleen Collins will host the latest iteration of the monthly lecture series, Science at Cal. Professor Collins will discuss the connections between the seemingly incontrovertible fact of human aging, a fascinating enzyme known as telomerase, and malignant cancers. While cancer cells can grow indefinitely, all normally functioning human tissues will eventually die out. This is because with each successive cell division, the protective cap, or telomere, at the end of each chromosome is gradually degraded. While the enzyme telomerase repairs this damage in embryos, it is not fully active in adult human tissues, perhaps to prevent the uncontrollable growth of cancer cells. Professor Collins will discuss telomeres and telomerase function and how they affect the balance of human aging and immortality. The free public talk will be held July 19th in room 159 of Mulford Hall on the UC Berkeley campus. The lecture will begin at 11 a.m. sharp.
4: Science Neat is a monthly science happy hour for adults 21 and over that pairs lightning talks with interactive stations on the back patio of the El Rio Bar at 3158 Mission Street in San Francisco. The theme for July's Science Neat is Backyard Science, and will feature the science of things right here in the Bay Area, from plants to plankton, and beetles to bikes. Admission is $4, and the event will be on Tuesday, July 22nd, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m.
1: And now, a few of our favorite science stories. Rick's back to present the news.
4: The rocky planets that are closest to our sun generally have an iron core that makes up about a third of their mass, that is surrounded by rock that makes up the other two-thirds. Mercury is an exception, and is the other way around, with a massive iron core that takes up about 70% of the planet's mass. This has been difficult to explain. If Mercury had been built up by collisions, the way that Venus and Earth and Mars were, we'd expect it to have a similar composition. In a letter published in Nature Geoscience on July 6th, Eric Asfog and Andreas Rüfer of Arizona State University report their simulations that suggest that collisions may have stripped away Mercury's mantle. Some moon and planet-sized rocks would bounce off of each other, sometimes knocking one body out of its orbit, while the impactor and the leftover debris coalesced into a planet. This model is consistent with Mercury's high abundance of volatile elements that have been observed recently, by NASA's Messenger spacecraft. In their so-called hit-and-run model, Mercury's missing mantle would end up coalescing onto Venus or Earth.
1: A new report compiled by UC Berkeley scientists has definitively linked a gene that has helped Tibetan populations thrive in high-altitude environments to a hitherto little-known human ancestor, the Denisovans. The Denisovans, along with the Neanderthals, went extinct around 40 to 50,000 years ago. About the time the modern human began to ascend, an allele is a version of a gene. In this case, an unusual allele of the gene EPAS1, which regulates hemoglobin production, has been common among Tibetans since their move several thousand years ago to inhabit areas at around 15,000 feet of elevation. While most people have alleles that cause them to develop thick blood at these high elevations, which can later lead to cardiovascular problems, the Tibetan allele raises hemoglobin levels only slightly, allowing possessors to avoid negative side effects. The report, which will later be published in the journal Nature, details the unique presence of the advantageous allele among Tibetans and conclusively matches it with the genome of the Denisovans. This is significant because as principal author Rasmus Nielsen, UC Berkeley professor of integrative biology, writes, it shows very clearly and directly that humans evolved and adapted to new environments by getting their genes from another species. Nielsen added that there are many other potential species to explore as sources of human DNA.
2: This show marks the end of our production of Spectrum. I want to thank Rick Karneski, Renee Rao, and Alex Simon for their help in producing Spectrum. I want to extend a blanket thank you to all the guests who took the time to appear on Spectrum over the three years we have been on Calyx. To Sandra, Lena, Aaron, and Lorraine, thanks for your guidance and help. To Joe, Peter, and Greg, thanks for your technical assistance and encouragement. To listeners, thanks for tuning in, and stay tuned to Calyx.